hit me. From Studio P in Sausalito, the home of the hit, it's time for... Suckatash. Yes, Suckatash, the comedy soundcast soundcast featuring snippets from comedy... Soundcast. And also interviews with comedians, comedian soundcasters, and other showbiz folk. And now, here's your host, internationally recognized comedy soundcast soundcaster, Mark... Persia. Mark. Thank you, Bill Haywatt. Hey there, listener. I am Mark Hershon, your host for this Epi 303 edition of Suckatash the Comedy Soundcast Soundcast. Just back from a nine-day vacation in sunny Hawaii, and I am all rested and recharged. But not surprisingly, world events are still nothing to come home to. Battled Ukraine, Roe v. Wade in imminent danger of being overturned by the not-so-Supreme Court, and COVID still bopping along with surges and spikes and people pretty much pretending it's all better now. Yay! Well, to take our minds off of such things, at least for a little while, I have a great guest I'm chatting with today, and I will tell you more about him after I ask if you had a chance to check out last week's installment of the show, entitled appropriately, A Very Special Episode. Commanded by my co-host Tyson Saner, he took time to reflect back on the careers and soundcasts of three of our funniest, nicest, and recently past comedians as he clipped snippets from their shows, the Louie Anderson Podcast, Bob Saget's Here For You, and Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcasts. Those three will certainly be missed. You can easily scoop up that episode from the usual distribution points like Apple and Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Audible.com, and now Podchaser.com, too. And, of course, all 302 episodes of this show preceding this one are available at our home site, SuckatashShow.com. For this edition of Suckatash, my guest is Pat Hazel who's a multi-hyphenate threat, as they used to say, comedian, writer, director, producer, and, as of the pandemic, soundcast host. His show is called Creativity in Captivity, and it's not so much about comedy as it is about cracking open the noggins of his guests, metaphorically speaking, and getting to the juicy nuggets of creative wisdom inside. Frequently, however, his guests are comics, like he's had Jerry Seinfeld, Brian Regan, Jackie Cation, and as of this week's 50th episode of his show, Pat's guest is Nate Bargazzi. Pat and I talk about a lot of topics, including where we first knew each other from, and you'll find him a fascinating guy. He's been a writer on Seinfeld and award shows and his own shows, and he's got some great stories, too, including a terrific backstage at The Tonight Show story from when he got to appear during Johnny Carson's last season on the show. We'll get into that chat with Pat Hazel right after we take a quick break for our longtime fake sponsor, Henderson's Pants, and their all-new summer stock slacks hello friends and welcome to the lazy hazy crazy days of summer bill haywatt here to tell you about the latest invention from henderson's pants summer stock slacks just like those amazing broadway shows that leave the great white way to hit the road and make money off the rubes in the flyover states henderson's summer stock pants look great on the outside but they're really cheaply made using the the flimsiest of materials and very little attention to detail. They look great on the outside from 20 feet away. Oh, but trust me, these suckers barely hold up past the first wearing. And by first wearing, I'm talking about the try-on in the dressing room. And once you wash them for the first time, <laughs> you can just plan on throwing your brand new Henderson Summerstock slacks away. Ultra cheap to make. You'd think Henderson would pass the savings on to you. But oh my goodness, no. These handsome but useless trousers are just as expensive as our top-of-the-line dress slacks. Originally designed for out-of-towners, yokels, and complete schlemiels, Henderson Summerstock slacks are available in little tourist shops wherever trinkets and tchotchkes are sold. That's Henderson's, makers of ephemeral garments and transitory togs since 1354. And now back to the unique permanence of Suckatash. Joining us right now is Pat Hazel, uh, host of Creativity in Captivity, the soundcast that's, uh, well, I 
kind of interesting. Hi, Pat, first of all, how are Hello, you? Hello, uh, nice to be here. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so um, I was just saying that uh, your, your, your soundcast, we call them soundcasts on this soundcast. Back in Whatever the professional people call it, I'm, I'll, I'll join that team. They don't call it that. We call it that. The oh, professional people still call it a podcast. But in 2016, I realized they had stopped making the Apple iPod. Ah. And I said, well, why are we still promoting podcasts? And somebody right. said, well, it means personal audio device. And I said, well, audio starts with an A. So yeah, that doesn't make sense. Um, so anyway, so I've been calling them a soundcast since then. Um, a few people have picked it up, but not enough to make a movement. Uh, <laughs> no, that's um, right. You know, the wave was not started by the first guy who got up. It was the second guy. That's right. right. Like, otherwise, it was it's, just, a it's just a going to the restroom. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, but I believe I think we clipped uh, your show. That's what we call it clipping, because um, most of what we do on Succotash is clip other people's comedy podcasts or soundcasts and to promote them. That's how we started this show was um, in 2011. I realized that the interest in podcasts was just sort of not really taking off. They were like literally 15% of Americans even had heard of a podcast, let alone listened to them. And a lot of uh, our friends had comedy shows, uh, comedy podcasts, and I wanted to start my own. And most of them were people talking to other people or three comics together talking right. or whatever. And I said, you know what? I think to give this thing a shot in the arm, I'll do a comedy show, but the most, most of the focus will be on promoting people's comedy shows. Most of them, my friends at the time. Um, and so that's how we got started. And then we started doing interviews uh, because just listening, listening to clips can get a little boring. Yeah. Um, well, it's nice to be an aggregator. I will say that Sometimes people discover something because they don't have the time to take a whole episode or, or to find it, you know, I mean, there are millions of these sound casts out there now. Yeah. And, you know, mine focuses on the creative process only because I find that uh, while I know a lot of great comedians and screenwriters and sitcom writers that I didn't want to be in a niche that was mm. one genre. So the variety of disciplines, which, you know, is quite arranging now <laughs> i'm talking to aerialists i'm talking to ventriloquists i'm talking to chocolatiers but any kind <laughs> of weird passionate artsy fartsy thing uh, i feel like it's kind of fun to get on the inside of it and learn what they're up to yeah and it's uh, the good thing the, the good thing about you having comics on from time to time is because you know i do these reviews for vulture.com's this week in comedy this month now in comedy podcasts they've made it a monthly column uh it gives me a chance to cover you <laughs> well we uh, let me tell you we were graced by uh, the mention i think when jerry seinfeld did the show you you pushed it out and it was really invaluable just just for people to discover it, it right. takes an awful lot. Yeah, um, which is which is again why we do Succotash. You know. To, yeah. Well, exactly I love the comics. Do. I will say I always enjoy them, and we just separate them by four episodes or so, so that we're not back to back. You know. Yeah. Full glibness, but we have had Kevin Nealon and uh, Dana Gould upcoming. We have Nate Bergazzi this yeah. Thursday coming up. Nice. So that's a pretty great one, and he. He was such a big fan of Brian Regan's and Jerry Seinfeld's mm. that when he heard those episodes, Nate was like, I can't believe I'm going to, that you're going to have me on. And I was like, this guy is so uh, worthy of the success he has. I don't yeah. know if you're a Nate fan or not, but I, love I am his yeah. storytelling and his sort of aw shucksness is so, <laughs> yeah, it's so great. And he doesn't really write a lot. He, he doesn't, sit down and write in a disciplined way. He writes bullets. He sees stories. He tells stories. Mm. He develops them on stage. And, you know, of course, everybody who's a good comic, you remember where the laughs are and you keep those stories. That's and right. You move on. But yeah, he's got some amazing stories that all begin with his dad being a comedy magician and a clown when he was growing up. So, Oh, really? He, okay. He, so yeah, he grew up, his dad, Stephen Bergazzi was, a, uh, is a very good magician. In fact, he, mm is opening for Nate coming up in Las Vegas at the Wynn Hotel. No kidding. Yeah, it's it's amazing. So, and his dad's very funny and very good. But, you know, you take for granted when your dad's this <laughs> goofball guy and he tells stories. I can't even get into it, but he, mm. he his dad was doing a show somewhere when he was a kid and he came home with the guy dressed up from the Easter Bunny from the mall 
but the guy couldn't fit his head in the car. So he had the Easter bunny head sitting on his lap and um, Nate came running out and was freaked out by, you know, this beheaded Easter bunny, <laughs> but they're just normal. They're just run of the mill uh, stories at the Bargatze house. Well, that's funny. I, I, I really had not heard that much about Nate until he actually kind of jump-started his podcast or soundcast, which I think had he'd started one. And then when the COVID lockdown happened, he restarted it, which is what I'm going to talk about, about your title of your show, Creativity and Captivity, because you started yeah. your show during the COVID lockdown. I did. And, and again, you know, the captivity had two meanings. One to me was taking a guest on like out of the wild and holding them in captivity mm. for an hour to study them nice. and get everything we could out of them and then release them back to what they do. <laughs> nice. And, you know, so it had a double meaning, but, um, but it, yeah, it, I'll tell you what, when the venues went away and I had, you and I met when we were in the stand up comedy yeah. bunkers, you know, like coming up through the ranks. So, you know, I had moved on still do perform, but I was, directing commercials, doing other kinds of things that required people to gather. And I so took for granted that, that it could all go away. So after months of like looking around going, Oh, wait a minute, people can't come to the theater. People can't do production. People can't, I can't cast or, or do any of this stuff in development without bodies together. So this was a product of one thing that I was doing on the side was creative consulting for studios, networks, ad agencies, kind of under the radar. I have this company called Sweetwood Creative and our tagline is your humor resources department. Nice. So, you know, sometimes we're punching up a commercial or sometimes we're I'm directing something that needs humor infused in it. And I was really enjoying that, but I, I realized, oh, I can do the creative consulting via the soundcast by having opening those phone calls mm. up. I don't talk about a person's project. They might have an NDA on, but I do, I do approach it in the same way, which is, you know, if we're going to talk about story development or how to write or character, I've talked to playwrights, people like that, you know, I just give them the advice I would give them on the phone, but the listener gets the, the free consultation. If that right, makes sense. Right. Yeah. That's cool. That's very cool. Um, let's see. There were a couple other things. It's uh, when I start these things as a conversation instead of an interview, it's always interesting the way these things sort of snake out. So talked about the creativity and captivity thing, which is interesting because, because I was almost ready to sh uh, shut this show down back when COVID had started, I was winding it down. COVID started. And I talked to my co-host because, um, for a while, I, I did kind of step away and I was the executive producer and had uh, Tyson Saner hosting the show. And he had been my associate producer for a long time, sending me clips. Right. And so he took over as the host. And then I said, you know what? I'm getting tired of this. It's, we're not kind of doing it on a regular enough basis. And so we, we're going to shut it down. We go, let's take a hiatus. Hiatus, right? <laughs> right. Air, air quotes. And then a month after we announced we were taking hiatus, COVID kicks in. <laughs> Everything locks down. My office sends everybody home. And I call Tyson. I go, well, let's start it back up again. And I had read that Soundcast had started to take a dip because nobody was driving to work. Oh, they weren't going to the gym. Yeah. And it started to take a hit and was going back down. So we renamed the show Succotash Shut In the Soundcast Stimulus Package. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's a good hook. That is right. right. So but you know, it's funny. I only learned it after doing it because I was not an avid listener of the, mm. you know, these formats. And I did learn what an individual thing it is. Yeah. So that commute is critical. The taking a walk, the exercise, the art visual artist in their studio that needs something, you know, in the background while they work, the chef that's chopping and preparing food. This became their sort of company along the way and it differs from radio because radio was although people not like back in the 40s listening to it as a family but when you're listening to a radio show everybody's listening to the same point in time right right, right? and so you yeah. go hey well, you know we'll take you know the fifth caller gets the tickets right. well, there's no right. fifth caller here right so yeah. it's a very individual medium which is interesting uh, which is why you'll hear some, some people that are a little bit more into it now go, they talk to their listener as opposed to listeners. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Right. You know, the other thing I'm finding is that people on road trips, you know, there might be couples who binge watch a 
sitcom in their bed on a computer, but yeah. they might pick a podcast or a, a journey that they go, oh, well, where can we listen to a few of these on our drive to New Mexico or something? Yeah. You know, those are the reports I get back is that that people are listening to six episodes in a row, you yeah. know, because they get on a, on a long distance drive. Yeah. Or my wife and I will listen to the same podcast during different times. She'll listen to it during her commute. I'll listen to it during a hike like two days later, and then we can talk about the episode, but we haven't had to sit there together and listen to it. Yeah. Which is interesting. Well, the funniest person in this whole loop is my mom who knows nothing about this. Yes. So my brother loads it onto her iPad and, <laughs> uh, and I'll probably try to turn her on to this one. Right. But, yeah. But she doesn't even know it's, it's just a button that opens the episode. And so every Thursday when my show comes on it, she sits down, like she's having a cup of coffee with us. Nice. Oh, and great. it's amazing that she calls afterwards to correct me or to say something, you know, in this week, there was somebody who was talking about cinematography and I had joked that my mom doesn't know what it means, that she, that she <laughs> thinks it means scenery. Like we were at the grand Canyon and she's looking down, look at the cinematography down there. Right. And, and it made me really laugh, but this guy who's a cinematographer, well, she's not wrong, you know? And I was like, Oh, my mom will be thrilled to hear this. Right. And so in the middle of that episode, she calls me to say, I'm not wrong. You know, like she, <laughs> you know, or if I'll make some, you know, I don't know, some fact isn't quite right. She's a big time fact checker. You know, your grandfather yeah. never had a DeSoto. I said, no, I think, <laughs> I think he did. Well, I'm going to call your uncle and we're going to get, the, I go, I don't need to, to print a retraction, you know, because she just really thinks it's for her. You know right. what I mean? Like, that's like the, you know, the highest level of individual listener. Oh yeah. Well, I, I was 10, 10 years into this. And one day my, my mom calls me and says, Hey, I heard your interview with Dana Carvey. I go, what, you know how to download. So she'll be hearing this interview, by the way. Because oh, good. Well, I want to say hi to your mom because the mom's put up with a lot because yes, the <laughs> they are great sources of comedy <laughs> material. And and my mom now thinks she's a writer for me, right? <laughs> because when I do material, I'm really, I'm not mocking her. I'm just repeating, you know, when she gets the names of movies incorrect or those kinds of things, it yeah. makes me laugh so much, <laughs> you know, she's going to go see fried potato, French fried potato, sun-dried tomato, <laughs> fresh, like anything but the actual thing. And, and then years later, she's like, I should be getting royalties. It's like, well, that's not, you're not technically writing. You're <laughs> a lunatic. And, and I'm observing that and I'm translating it to the audience. But Well, my mom is a huge, like old Hollywood buff. She has always loved Hollywood movies and all this stuff. And so she will, she will fact check guests I have on the show with stuff about old Hollywood. If somebody says something, she goes, that wasn't who was in that movie. So, oh, right. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I should have you on, on live during these <laughs> interviews. Yeah. Well, that's fun though, to have a mom that you probably grew up watching Hollywood movies mm -hmm. with and stuff. That's a nice connection to be able to chat yeah. on that level. Absolutely. So another thing that struck me when you were talking about uh, Nate was his dad being a magician. That's how you got started, right? I mean, your first stage it, time was as a magician. It was. I actually started as a close-up magician at restaurants and working the streets in Omaha in the old market and passing a hat and that sort of thing. So I was, I would say what got me in the comedy door was I had an act. It was mostly a comedy magic act. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to bring volunteers up on stage. And the, the tricks weren't good or bad. They were kind of okay. And they had endings, like I did find the people's card or I put the rope back together. But, <laughs> but I used the comedy as a way to, to uh, you know, to keep it up, you know, like yeah. if the trick didn't work or if the volunteer was lame or whatever it was, it was sort of like, oh, comedy will, will carry the day. <laughs> and when I moved from Omaha to California and that was Johnny Carson was still on the air at the time. And I was determined to get on as a stand up and not bring the tricks. Mm. That was like you know, to me, that was graduation day. If I could do that. Yeah. And I mean, I still have an affection for the magic world and the magic castle and, you know, those sorts of things, but it was really important to me to be, to use my sense of humor and my writing skills to sort of navigate through what I was doing. And at that time, Jim McCauley was the, sure. uh, the talent agent and yeah. somewhere he saw me in the final year of Johnny. And I was on one time oh, how great. With, yeah. And for, you know, he was a Nebraskan as well. And that was sort of the path 
you know, if you're going to become Johnny Carson, you had to do these things and get, you know, yeah. get his okay symbol to send your career off. And he, he was, he was a magician too, right? Didn't he, he was and, magic? Yeah. yeah. And, and I came over there as a standup and he had heard from somebody that I was great with a deck of cards. Uh, so I was in my dressing room and I got called to his office before the show. And so wow, I thought, wow, I, I didn't know. Now I know, but at the time I thought, Oh, he welcomes everybody or I didn't know what I was thinking. So <laughs> I go to his office and this is about, 35 minutes before the show was going to tape and he goes, Hey, uh, you know, show me what you can do with a deck of cards or whatever. And I did a couple of things and some shuffles and a, a trick where I bounced a card off the desk and it stuck in the pack mm -hmm. of cards next to the card that he had. Wow. Nice. It. He nice was one. like, wow, that's, and then he showed me some coin tricks. He was, he had some thing with half dollars called the hanging coins were very difficult manipulation. And I was like, you could still do this. He goes, I actually, I practice all the time. Now wow. we're like little kids in a bedroom, right? This yeah. was just like, and the next thing you know, somebody's knocking on the door, John, we got a show to do here. Let's get going. <laughs> and I thought, well, this is the funnest way to do, uh, to be welcome. And I didn't know until I got home after doing this show and yeah. was telling another comic, he's like, you met him? Like, you know, <laughs> Normally you're out there, you do it in front of the curtain and you're, you're just hoping you get invited to the desk. And then yeah. after that, you know, the cameras go off and he takes off and, you know, there's not a lot of exchange. No, that's so amazing. That's it was really amazing. powerful. That's fantastic. Yeah. And sadly, a very interesting thing. Many, many years later, uh, I, being from Nebraska, the Lincoln can't remember the name of their paper, but the Lincoln newspaper mm. called me and said, Hey, we want to get a few words about Johnny's passing. And I go, Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. He was such an influence. They go, he's not dead. I go, wait, what? <laughs> no, I'm not going to talk about it. They what? were pre-writing oh, an obituary. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I called somebody else. I'm going to, I think I give the guy his dignity until, you know, Oh but, man. But that was kind of a show business eye opener to find out that they had they, they people get to a certain age they start to bank their stuff so they can just fill in the last you know yeah oh man of their life but what a great treat to get invited in, into his office man that's amazing it amazing. really was amazing um let's see i was uh something else you said just keyed off something but well wait that. let's let's go back yeah. to something you were saying just yes. before we started which is you remember when we either yes. met or worked together and i don't you know it's sort of a vast amount of people during the 70s and 80s of of and even 90s of comedy where we were traversing yeah. around the country and at different clubs so what's your recollection here's why you would not recall working with me because we never actually did work together okay. but we hung out together fairly extensively at the improv on melrose okay uh you know there was such a big hang scene in the late 80s right 87 88 89 into the early 90s while the boom was happening yeah and our paths crossed frequently we would hang out at the same tables and talk to the same people sure you should i can tell of, you people like wayne fetterman were yes, there and yes henry he, cho and lots yes. and lots of people yeah yep be shoved out of the stairway by by bud right right because we're in the way and but for those who don't know you go there sometimes to hang out hoping somebody doesn't show up or they yes. drop out or they go short and they just come running out we got to put somebody on you know yeah. so yeah you acted casually like you weren't there to get stage time but that's that's yeah. all it was now i wasn't but i wasn't a stand-up right i i was an improv and okay. I, I had moved down from san francisco and the only people i knew in la were comics because i used to book the punchline for the okay for, i didn't know that okay for the foxes i used to book rooster tea feathers i used to run the comedy underground in seattle for those were big scenes yeah three years um so i knew all these comics right i my first screenplay that i sold i wrote with franklin ajai oh yeah yeah wow you know so knew all these people and i used to stay with franklin when i went to la before i moved down there and so i got a place like five blocks from the improv and i would go there six nights out of the week because i didn't know anybody and do you remember antonio the bus boy the older? oh sure yeah. yeah sure antonio kept me alive i mean i had very little money coming in i would sit at a table he kept me in bread and coffee yeah for a for a one dollar tip every yeah. night it was amazing well i do you know i didn't get a lot of meals at the improv <laughs> that wasn't like the there wasn't big generosity of that but 
I do, and I do remember always being shuffled. I, I kind of got the shoulder and the bump and the move and the, you know, what are you doing here? I was like, I'm on, like I'm I'm here on actual business, you know. Um, but I think the funniest thing to me was I moved from Nebraska. I didn't know how any of it worked. And when when you did a set as a stand-up, I think they paid you seven dollars and fifty cents or something. It was a, a, a nominal, but nobody ever told yeah. you. I didn't know they were paying us. And so they would write these little checks out and they would put them in a box that was sitting at the box office. Yeah. And you'd have so, to ask for them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I never knew. And I never asked. <laughs> and I, and then somebody started to say to me, Hey, how come you never pick up your checks? And I thought, Oh, they're hazing me. Like this is, I'm, I'm not taking the bait. I go, ah, you know, I don't, I don't really need the, you know, like I, I just kept, and people go, Hey, you know, check the checkbox once in a while. And I was like, Oh, everyone's now they're all going after me. Like, you know, when I was in, in a restaurant somewhere in Omaha, we used to tell the bus boys, Oh, did you dust the neon, you know, which was unbelievably hot. And, you know, it was like, so I felt like, Oh, this I'm being set up. Yeah. And I ignored that for almost a year and a half. And how many checks did you have by the time you actually hundred, a hundred checks. But the funny thing about it is, it wasn't some, it was literally just a little recipe box, yeah. you know, that had everybody's name with a little card sticking up. And so they were alphabetical and you would go through and you saw everybody's stuff. That's why everybody knew that yeah. I, all my checks were in there. Right. Oh, that's hilarious. It was, it was a big fat slot with, you know, 70 checks or something. And at the time the punchline movie had just come out. Oh yeah. With Tom and, Hanks and yeah, Sally and, Field. Right. And so Tom Hanks went to the Melrose improv a few times and, mm -hmm. and the comedy store places to test his material that he was going to do in the movie. Yeah. And so in the checkbox, Tom Hanks, and then Pat Hazel. And <laughs> he had a couple of $7 checks in there. And I was like, uh, Ooh, should I take one of the, like, this would be a great collectible. And I thought, no, no, like, I gotta be honest. And then I get to mine and I couldn't believe it. I, you know, at that time it was a bounty. If you got, you know, $215 or something, that was groceries and video rental and yeah, yeah. gas in your car. And so in a weird way, I'm glad that I did wait, but I, I felt so stupid and, and the, I don't know who was working in there at the time. They're like, thank God. Like we were going to have to get another box, you know, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I had, I had the exact opposite thing happen to me because I wasn't a comic working there, but I had started uh, Mark Lano, the, you know, Bud's partner. Uh, they had just opened the Santa Monica improv and he asked if I would start an improv group on oh, cool. Tuesday nights down there. So I had like a, a hybrid improv group. They're half, half improvers and half stand-up. So I had like uh, Jeff Joseph and Steve Smith Great. and yeah. Lisa Mendy and all these stand-ups. And then I had all these purebred improvisers as well. And so Mark comes to me one night and goes, man, you're here all the time. Why don't let's set up a tab for you instead of having to like pay, you know, pay your stuff, blah, blah. Oh, can, no. oh hey, great. Okay. So I start this tab and in my mind, I'm going, Hey, they're picking up my tab, which is great. And finally he comes to me oh, no. two months later and says, you know, your tab's up to $400. You're going to have to pay this. Thing. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right. I forgot. Yeah. Oh my God. It's so horrible. <laughs> Yeah, I did actually like when they had those places because it meant you could run a couple of different places and get a kind of different audience, like Santa Monica's audience yeah. was a bit different. And then they even at one time opened one at, at the Hilton in the Valley or yes. something. And yes, you would go there and that was like the strangest, oh. you know, it was a banquet room that, yeah. you know, and, <laughs> and yeah. you know, it was like, that was like, um, you know, prison time, you know, some of those places. You, you know, but, you know, it, the boom was there when you would run down to San Diego or you would run to somewhere else. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Irvine or wherever. And, you know, I was grateful for every bit of stage time because, you know, while it's torture to go on at midnight after Robin Williams, somebody where you just go, oh, they're not even going to stay for me. I, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, yeah. I remember the guy who did Roger Rabbit. What was his name? Um, Charles, Charles Fleischer. Fleischer, yeah coming off that movie and you know he was a he was a wicked funny guy and did oh yeah you know, crazy off the top of the cup stuff 
but but he would he would march out of the room with people behind him you know like you know and you go oh lord come on please you know um, and you would be on with three street walkers and some drunks and oh. comics waiting to go on and you'd look out and you go look i don't even suck yet like i you gotta <laughs> give me i mean two minutes of your time you know well, that's uh, like, like doing improv. Cause I would go up and do improv with like Overton and stuff, but it was always at the end of the night, everyone had done their standup stuff. And so we were literally the last set and we weren't even a set. It was like, Hey, let's go for round. And sure. there's like seven people in the audience who kind of couldn't care less. They're waiting. Cause they have to go pick up a hooker or get their drugs. Right. Or <laughs> go to pink's hot dog for the, the last yeah. bastion of food. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Let me, uh, let me ask you a couple things here that I was thinking about because uh, I was looking things up. You, one of the shows that you did, first of all, just because we haven't really covered it, you wrote on Seinfeld. I did as early as it was called the Seinfeld Chronicles before it went on the air. I did not work on the pilot, which uh, Larry and Jerry did sure. sort of on their own. But right after that, the first episodes that they were writing when they got picked up, I had a, a co-author, Matt Goldman, Okay. who was a comic out of Minneapolis. And we had written a little teeny play called Bunk Bed Brothers. Oh, okay. And that play was our spec, our spec script that we sent to Castle Rock. And, and he and I got the first two jobs on the show with Larry and, and Jerry, which was, nice. you know, that was like being put into the space program, you know, like working for NBC and Castle Rock and, you know. Yeah, that's am amazing. Yeah. And I did some, I drew the short straw because we were all four standups. And we kept thinking, what do we need a warm-up comedian for? We're funny. Well, I was so naive about mm. your focus when you're making a TV show. Yeah. But I drew the short straw. And so I became the warm-up comedian at the beginning <laughs> of the show and threw between the scenes, which was kind of a second paycheck, yeah. you know. But the second week I go, okay, let's draw straws again. And Larry goes, no, you you have seniority. You're, oh. You're experienced from last <laughs> week. So I was like, oh, no, you know. Oh, it's that's a tough, that's a tough gig. You know, that is funny. Yeah. I, uh, I interviewed Jerry, um, for just, I don't know if you remember the just for laughs newspaper. Yeah. Yeah. I do but remember it. I was a feature writer for them. I did a lot of the puff piece stuff. So, uh, I knew Jerry from him working in Seattle when I ran the underground. And so I called him up and we, uh, we met in LA and had, uh, it was like just after the second summer show. So they were committed to two more. And he go, he tells me that he goes, says, I don't know if we're going to make it. He said, yeah. I got to tell you, the, the executives have no idea what we're doing. They just, no. they don't, they don't think it's funny. <laughs> they're just sitting there and they're just, and then from there, of course, it just took off. Were you still working there when Bob Nickman was on staff? Yeah, I was, but, but I worked a little differently. I wasn't a writer anymore. I was coming in to do the warm up one day. A oh, week. Okay. But what's interesting is they, those first four shows were not picked up under regular late night television or, or, you know, primetime television. They were picked up under a budget for specials, like oh. things like where Circus of the Stars would get some money or something, that kind of thing. So yeah. there was an executive named Rick Ludwin, and he pulled together money from four of these specials, which <laughs> was why they had such a short order. Oh, and interesting. That also meant it didn't have an act, the same time slot, right? Which was yeah. awkward for it. And I think even into that first season, it got bumped around by the Gulf War and Ted Koppel and other things. Yeah. So it was touch and go quite a bit. But I, I would say that if somebody's to be credited for it being on, staying on, um, is when Brandon Tartikoff was there is when it started. Uh -huh. And Brandon's wife, Lily, really liked Jerry and the concept. Mm. And so she was saying, you know, at home, you got to keep this on. You got to give this guy a shot. You know, like, I'm not sure the numbers, you know, didn't reflect the, the high viewership and stuff until really, I think when cheers was going off the air, it picked up a time slot following cheers closing out. Right. So oh, yeah. they would roll into that. And, and that was kind of the beginnings of must see TV. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I met Tartikoff once we were uh, some producers brought me in because they wanted to do a NBC wanted to do a version of whose life is it whose line is it anyway. Yeah. And so we got together a bunch of improvisers uh, and we put together a thing and it was like, well, this is this isn't going to work to show this off to Tartikoff because we have no audience. How are we supposed to get? So we've we basically just kind of said, well, let's just act like it's improv and we'll just do it's basically sketches. Right. Oh, OK. Yeah. Yeah. 
And well, because he's here, we'll get get a few suggestions from him while we're doing it to kind of flavor the thing. So we're we're in a sound stage at NBC and doing this thing for him, and he's laughing and laughing and just says, "This is great, this is great." And on his way out, he leans down to me as he's walking and goes, "This is never gonna get picked up." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those those moments, those ones stick with you. Those stories, yeah. like. There was a guy, uh, Ted Harbert was at ABC and then he moved somewhere else. Like after they leave, they get, you know, some kind of a production deal or a sweetheart yeah. deal or something. Yeah. And I remember somebody taking me in to pitch a show that I had really outlined this pilot and this whole idea, you know, with myself at the center, which was comedy, you know, that was the way to go in yeah. comedy. But anyway, I <laughs> pitched my heart out and it was kind of something that took place in the Midwest and whatever. And then the second I was done, there was a moment where an executive or him in the pitch, somebody goes, it's really great. What if we put you in Spain and made you kind of a bullfighter that was a fish out of water? I was like, <laughs> nothing, like nothing I said for the last 25 minutes even resonated. You know? oh, oh my God. That's and you go, you're like, oh, okay. I don't really know what that is, but you know, Oh, crazy. So yeah, those, those stories, there's a lot of them. And uh, I'd say, listen, the one, the one thing that I learned about pitching uh series or anything, even when I work with ad agencies or commercials, or whatever, is the magic word is to listen. Somebody, oh. an executive, somebody on the inside said, Oh, when you go to NBC, here's my piece of advice. When you pitch, listen, I go, wait a minute. I'm not, I'm not supposed to be. And he goes, no, they'll tell you what's missing from their roster. They'll tell you mm. if they want a family show or they want an ensemble. Like if, if you ask questions up top, if you get a little framework, they really do say, we're looking for something for kids five to seven years, old. like whatever there is, it's, they don't, they really need to plug that in. They don't really need you to come in with some other thing that looks like everything they have on the lineup, you know? Oh yeah. Well, that's why I've always advocated people should take some improv classes because the first the first movie after the feature I did with Franklin, 20 years later, I sold a movie. Uh, I sold several movies to the Hallmark channel and the second, and I've told this story on the show before, but the, are they the, Christmas movies? The first one was the very first Christmas movie they did. Okay. Called okay, Santa, called, called Santa junior. Okay. And, uh, and then while they were editing Santa junior, I, I came in because uh, the director had to go out of town. And so the executive producer who ran the company, Larry Levinson says, Hey, can you come in? I'm cutting the show. And I go, you want a writer in the editing room? He said, I just want to make sure I don't, you know, throw something out that needs to be in there. I said, well, I said, you know, Kevin, the director shot everything that was in the script. He goes, this is the funniest. <laughs> you hear these Hollywood insight things. He says, well, I got to tell you, I never read the script. Oh my God. Wait, you have final edit and you don't read the script. He says, no, I just kind of look at what the director does as kind of a jigsaw puzzle. And then I just figure out how the pieces go together. Oh my God. I will, I will be right there. <laughs> so yeah. oh so I God, go down that's... there and while we're taking a break, uh, the guy who was my executive producer on that movie calls me in and says, Hey, Hallmark just called and said, do you have anything for Halloween? I go, well, of course right? If somebody opens yeah. the door for you, I go, yeah. So I start pitching this idea just out of my ass. I mean, <laughs> I say, yeah, I got this idea about this kid who finds this movie and it's a monster movie and he's a huge monster and the monsters in the movie get out of the film like Purple Rose of Cairo. Sure. That's great. And so I'm okay. And so I'm just, I, it's improv. I'm watching yeah. him for my cues and yeah. he's pitching me questions and I give him the answers. And I do, he said, this is great. Do you have something written up? I go, yeah, I got an outline back at my place. I'll, I'll email it to you. So <laughs> yeah. I run home and type up an eight page thing. And five weeks later, I get a call going, Hey, Hallmark wants to buy your Halloween movie. I go, okay, I guess I better start writing. Yeah. Those <laughs> are the days, man. Those were the days. You know, it, it really is, it was really fun. You know, you don't really know you're in a time of the Algonquin round table mm. when, you know what I mean? When you're just hanging out with people in your industry, but, but certain moments in time, you know, there's a time artistically where artists in Paris were all, you know, working in the yeah. same milieu, right? That kind of thing. And, and there are eras and I feel like comedies boom in California. I was a, I would say a sophomore or freshman mm. of classes, right? Yeah. So when you think about Jay Leno and Gary Shandling and Seinfeld, different people and, you know, and, and they came 
from a class of Carlin and uh, Robert Klein, Klein and something yeah. above them, right? And so I was there to witness it, but also seeing all of those people leave the comedy store or the improv and get a sitcom or to get a, a talk show or get something. Yeah. And then you would see the next graduating class. Bump some up. of They would bump up, but then some of them would become mechanics in the shop you know, for Roseanne or for somebody. And they were like, oh, I see those comics that used to open for us in Denver who were friends with Roseanne are now on the writing staff. Like there was a clear sense of, you know, if you were funny and you were disciplined enough, there was going to be work for you, plenty of work. Well, it's funny. You're the, I think you're the first person that sort of laid that out in the same way that I've, I've always talked to about people coming from the comedy club world that I do booking i said that is where the comedy boom started to the wings started to shake on it because all the a the a level the senior class got their tv shows the junior class got the writing jobs yep. and the freshmen ended up headlining clubs and they didn't have the chops they didn't have the time yet right and and it really to me the real you know thing that caused the the real bearings to fly off yeah. was the comedy central things and stuff because yes what would happen is, is they would see somebody do a few minutes. Like if you were on star search, you did 90 seconds or two <laughs> minutes. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like two minutes was a long set on star search. Yeah. So even if you did, if you won it, if you did seven of them, you only have done 14 minutes. <laughs> so you had, there's no way you had an hour to go play the Dallas improv. That's you know? right. And so you were really, you know, if you got fame before you had an act, it was pretty hard to play catch up. You right. know, and the club started papering the rooms to sell drinks. Yeah, that was and a so, disaster. So then you're getting people in the room that aren't really there to even see comedy. I mean, they are, but they don't know who they're seeing. Right. And well, the club, the club had a backup for themselves, which was the two drink minimum. Yes. The plan was we'll make our money from liquor. We'll make yeah. our money from appetizers. You know, like if you could deep fry a thing, we can do that, <laughs> you know, but, but what's funny about the giving away the tickets was they, they saturated it with put your business card in here and all that. And then they would send the business Tuesday night. You can send 40 people from your office, you know? And so they wouldn't come on the weekend for paying because they knew they could come for free yeah. on Tuesday. Right. Yeah. And it, it was like a very strange model, you yeah. know, which is like giving away too many samples. Like you can't fill up a person, you know, and they were not a they were not a comedy respectful audience because they were there for free and didn't even know who they're saying. Rick Overton used to refer to them as pass holes. Uh -huh. <laughs> that's great. I love that. Well, Rick's funny anyway, but that's a great. That one should stick around. It is. Um, let's see. Just a couple of things I want to get to. I don't want to use up your. I mean, we're doing this on a Sunday for goodness sake. Um, well, it counts but, for church, right? That's true. You're right. You're right. <laughs> yeah. So the show you mentioned um, about the, the bunk bunk bed brothers yes. uh, became the wonder bread years on PBS. Is that right? That is, is that... not true. No. Okay. It, 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 uh, the bunk bed brothers became a show called American pie American that NBC, pie. That NBC um, shot six episodes of, but okay. it didn't really get caught up in the lineup. I think one of them aired kind of went up a, a um, World Series game ran short on the East Coast and they <laughs> they realized that time, oh, the West Coast isn't going to have something like they threw it on. But we never really, that really never oh, saw okay. the light of day. But it was a really super fun show, sitcom with William Ragsdale playing my brother. And there were lots of, we had Sarah Silverman on and Terry Hatcher and people were our, were lots of guest stars on the rise. Okay. Um, and, but, but the Wonder Bread years was a, a, after I had written Bunkbed Brothers with Matt Goldman, and that was the thing that got us the job on Seinfeld. Yeah. I realized to book a play on the road, you have to have the commitment of the other actors mm. that, that maybe they, they book it a year from now. And you're like, Oh, how do I hold on to these people? So we don't have to re-rehearse and all of that. Yeah, yeah. And it was difficult. So I wrote a new piece, the wonder bread years right around when eBay was coming into its, you know, where you could suddenly look for anything you grew up with. Okay. Like, you know what I mean? Like I want to buy a pristine um, rock of Sockham robots or, yeah. you know what I mean? Or something <laughs> in the box. Like, and that moment where I noticed how people were getting into nostalgia, I thought I'm going to write a show about growing up 
and about looking forward. And I wanted it to be positive, but sort of now it was just me in it. So therefore I could take a booking mm. that was eight months from now, a year from now, 18 months from now. And again, if you want to know the secret sauce on it, it, the notion was if I can get one out there somewhere, yeah, I can fill the pipeline up. Like I can book the next one off of it. I can do a theater down the block. I can route or block book or something. And so it takes you a while sometimes to get to the first booking, yeah. but if you're doing it right, then you're on a roll. Right. But most comics didn't really have the patience to even a year out was a long time. Oh, you yeah. know, they'd be happy to three weeks from now, go to San Diego and open for somebody or, you know what I mean? But in LA, you know, you were just kind of living hand to mouth, calling into the clubs and saying, I'm available Tuesday. I'm available Friday. I can I can do late night. You know, you were, you were <laughs> calling yeah. in and then you sit and wait to see if you got any spots. <laughs> That's right. You know? Yeah. Just waiting and waiting. Yeah. And the, some of the places, the comedy magic club was a great stopping grounds for me. And they, they were big on chicken teriyaki. Mm -hmm. Like, if you weren't eating as a comic, you would go down there and, and just being in the green room, they go, Oh, you want anything? Do you need that? We'll get you. Oh yeah. No, I, I went to a lot of shows down there with friends of mine, just because I knew if I sat in the green room, I'd get fed. Yeah. And that was, <laughs> I got to say that meant a lot to all of us, Yeah, you know, that meal and that camaraderie because the green room, what the audience generally doesn't know is there's a second show going on. That's right. The inside chatter, the funny that, you know, people occasionally look at the monitor and watch somebody or they'll, they'll stop you and go, oh, watch this guy's bit yeah. of this thing. But mostly it's a whole different thing where Gary Shandling was walking around, flipping the pages of his yellow pad and somebody else was, you know, it was really magical to be. Oh, yeah, you know, there, there were there would be like a middle act just itching to get back into the conversation in the green room when their set was over. You know, <laughs> right. Are we still talking about that thing? <laughs> yeah. And there would be magicians that were that had, you know, fish bowls and birds in their jacket that, you know, don't touch me. Don't touch me. No, like I'm about to go on, you know. <laughs> well, let's circle back to uh, to your soundcast creativity in captivity. And I just want to know, are, you've talked to now, you've had, uh, it'll be 50 episodes as of this week, so two seasons, 25 shows. A yeah, season. we do 25 a season. Yeah. Very, very disciplined, by the way. Succotash is in season five. We've done 300 <laughs> and this will be 303rd show. Uh, we didn't start our second season until I think COVID started. <laughs> oh, I gotcha. Well, listen, I don't know what constitutes a season, but one of the things I thought this was sort of my mental game is that I look at a, anything uh, lost or some of these things and they go, Hey, it's season seven. And I think I, I can never start this thing. You know, like I'm never going to catch yeah. up. So my general thought was, you know, make it digestible enough that, you know, if you want to join us at any time, you don't feel like you've lost the race. Yeah, that's smart. And, and also it gave us a promotional hook, which is like when we started, we had Pete doctor, the chief creative officer mm. of Pixar as the first interview, like he, he came on and talked about storytelling animation. And this was literally off the of soul winning a Oscar oh, wow. that, that he was jumping on board. And we had Frank Oz talking about, you know, working with Jim Henson and some of the movies that he did. Amazing. And yeah. So we had a few, and I thought, okay, well then if we put somebody like Jerry Seinfeld in the midsection, and then we close with somebody big, then we can start to shape these so that we, so that we're not just like running out of like, it's my second cousin talking yeah. about his daughter's tap dancing recital. Like I didn't want that to happen. Yeah. So, so we did created tent poles along the way. And we thought, I know a lot of people who are not famous, who are unbelievably creative, who do really wild things. Yeah. And in order to listen to them, they might need to be cushioned between two people that you do. You go, wait a minute, this person's before Jerry Seinfeld or follows Jerry Seinfeld. They must be interesting, you know? And, and some of those people are, I call them a kind of a wild card, but they're really, there was a guy named Gary Staub who was a paleo artist. And I didn't know what that meant. I don't know what that means. It's a guy. Well, he, I don't think he made the title up, but I think he made the curriculum up that got him to this point. Hmm. What he does is full size dinosaurs for science and history museums. Like he literally makes megalodons and, oh, you wow. know, mastodons and, you know, 52 foot sharks that are hanging in museums in DC. And it was really intriguing. It was somebody had referred him to us 
He was unbelievably humble about his work. And oh, I can't do it that week. I'm taking a mammoth to London to put him in the, you know, whatever. And I was like, well, how do you take a mammoth? Well, we cut it into 13 pieces and then we restore it. We have to go through a man-sized door and restore this thing. <laughs> oh my and then we have to put hair on it. I was like, oh my God, this is, I love, I love those kinds of people yeah. because they are quietly changing the world, uh, doing what they do. And it's just a craft and they just, you know, they just diligently work on it every day. And so I, I talked to the, this woman, Fran, the other day, who's coming up. She's a artesian chocolatier Ooh. and makes sea salts and caramels. And you think, well, what's, what can you talk about? Well, her sea salts made it, her caramels made it to the White House. Ooh. Obama tasted them and then for eight years gave them out as parting gift if you visited the White House. A guest wow. was there. And wow. it changed her business. But her stuff is like right before we had the conversation, they very savvily sent me a mm. big sample kit. Um, and uh, man, it was amazing. <laughs> so I don't know that I would have ever known about it, you know, but it was That's great. fantastic. Any, uh, any bullet point takeaways of creativity that you've picked up from your guests that you've sort of like stuck a pin in and go, I got to remember that one. That is really, Oh, there's so many of those, uh, but I will say that it's interesting that most people talk about its patterns. Creativity isn't like a solution that you'd pull out of a thing. It's it's noticing where there's something missing between two things and building mm -hmm. it. Or, you know, there's something uh, contagious about it when you start to do it, when you start to take a risk and see a reward. Uh, some of these artists that I talk to, they can't show anybody the plan of what they're going to do because they don't know what it is. And, and this speaks to you as an improver, right? Mm -hmm. This this woman who does installations in museums, she they show her the space and then she builds something that comes off the walls or flows out the window. Mm -hmm. And they don't, the museum doesn't really get a choice at that point because <laughs> yeah. she's coming in there and bending chicken wire and putting stuff in and doing all of that. And it's not, it's not kid stuff. You know, it's, weeks of installation and even the yeah. putting in is kind of a an event because mm. people are watching art happening you yeah. know yeah and yeah. you know you obviously have to develop a trust and you have to have uh you know you have to be have a vision of some kind but it, every one of these i find is transferable so when an artist or a writer or a comic or a musician they all struggle with um imposter syndrome at some time or another like yeah, why am i yeah. even here mm. what am i doing who cares about my art right those things are you can transfer it across any medium yeah and also i'm here to say as you did when you wrote that uh, halloween movie you do have to do it you just have to go for it because nobody's going to give you permission you know they'll all tell you you can't do it but nobody can tell you you can do it right and so yeah. it's your job to make it happen you know and and i think being going at it improvisationally and figuring it out as you go is the best way as long as you can maintain your bearings that you don't have a mental health issue yeah. you know over yeah. getting in over your head right if you can't really write 120 pages then that screenplay is going to be pretty hard you know what yes. i mean yes and that's even long for a screenplay but i'm just saying if you don't have the discipline and you think you've got eight years to do it forget that you know yeah no, you got to get it done. That's yeah. but but it. we, uh, my friend Matt and I, who who wrote together on Bunkbed Brothers, we wrote a few different things, and I remember the movie people. We were fast writers. Part of it was being comics. Part of it was you know having written written in sitcom. You, you it's you got to have yeah. another episode. New new week, new episode. So we did that for feature, and they didn't like it because we wrote it too quickly. <laughs> I've gotten that. Yeah, I've so, done the exact same thing. How did you get this? Yeah, we're uh, not. No, it's I'll got tell you what we did on the next draft. We went and we wrote it in 10 days and then we went on vacation and <laughs> we turned it in like three months later and they go, now that's what we're talking about. Like we just <laughs> we, we heard what their note was, yeah. but we're like, this is how we write, you know, yeah. perception is reality, man. It's just yeah. like, OK, if you need that. That's what you're. that's what I'm going to give you. Yeah. That's but anyway, I mean. it's fun. And I, I do. I did enjoy doing it, as you say, with a collaborator, because it is a different game when you can laugh about it with yeah. if you get a terrible note from somebody or if you, you know, come out of a meeting, if you can roll your eyes and swallow hard and say, we learned from that, let's do something else over here. When you do it on your own, it's very personal. It is. And you have to, Yeah, it's a it's a very I've done I've written both ways as well. And I remember getting notes back for that first 
Hallmark movie. And it was just me sitting in my apartment and it was like, oh man, I got all these notes. How am I going to do it? And no one to bounce it off of, yeah. right? It's just like, Your okay. self-esteem. And you know what? It comes around, but the, but the initial hard news of anything, you know, when I was writing a Christmas movie, a Christmas commission, Christmas play in like April or, you know, like it wasn't Christmas. I wasn't feeling the vibe. I was oh, trying yeah. to figure out what to do. Um, I remember that I had to pu not punish myself, but I had to make a system, which was, no, you know, you're either going to write TV or watch TV, right? Like that was my attitude with theater too, mm. which is no coming home and sitting down and watching TV. Like I've got to write. And if I write a certain amount of pages, the reward was I could yeah. turn on the TV, oh, yes. you know, and I, often I weeks, I wouldn't turn on the TV because I would fall asleep like halfway through what I was writing. Yeah. You wouldn't make your reward. Yeah. That Christmas movie. I remember it was, it was the rewrites came in. It was Memorial day weekend. <laughs> and so I literally hung Christmas lights in my apartment. And this was in, uh, I was living half the time in Northern California, cranked up the AC. So it was freezing cold. Yeah. Did you play I, Christmas music? Played Christmas music. And yeah. I did not leave the apartment for the three days and did the entire <laughs> rewrite in three days. And just, just like you found out, I didn't turn in for two weeks. I said, they're not going to believe I did this in three days. Yeah, they don't, they don't know where it comes from. And then they wonder, did you write it? You know? Yeah. 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 Well, Pat, I want to thank you. This has been great. Uh, great catching up. Great hearing about your show and stuff you've done in your background from a, because uh, we never got to ch talk like this at the improv. It was always just, no. hey, can, hey, can I sit at this table? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, barely hanging around listening. Yeah. But I heard some funny things there, boy. Watch, listen to all those guys yeah. in the business. So. Anyway, yeah. I'm, I'm grateful. And thank you for amplifying the voice of, of my soundcast. I will always in your presence. I will. <laughs> thank you. I'll try to start the wave on that word for thank you. Thank you. So this will, this will, I'll have a link to, uh, to your show. Uh, I believe that your socials are um, at Pat Hazel on Instagram. That's correct. And Two L's at, on Hazel. I couldn't find that on Twitter. I only found at S Wood Creative for Sweetwood Creative. And that is correct on that one. And I'm on Facebook under my name, Pat Hazel with two L's. So we're just, we're starting to get these things going in the right direction. But I think if somebody wanted to see the, um, the guest list or whatever, uh, we have a website, which is creativityandcaptivity.fun, F-U-N. Fantastic. We'll have a link to that as well. All right. Thanks, man. Thanks, buddy. It's been great. All right, cool. See ya. Thanks again to Pat Hazel for the great convo. You heard him give the link to his home site, but we also have it up for you at the blog piece for this episode at our home site, SuccotashShow.com. We also mentioned his socials, but here they are again. At Pat Hazel, that's P-A-T-H-A-Z-E-L-L -L on Instagram. At S. Wood Creative on Twitter. And just Pat Hazel on Facebook. Our chat ran a bit longer than usual, so we're going to skip news, traffic, and sports this time around. We will, however, drag out the tweet sack. Hello, Tweety. And thank those of you who mentioned at Succotash Show in your socials during the past week or so. Hunter Block, Brigade Radio 1, Combat Radio. Hello, Ethan Dettenmeyer. Fascination Street, and pause the Dinosaur Hunter. The Jock Doc Podcast, Cora Pruna, Guitar Sun Cat, Misfit Scully, Married Crazy and Podcasting, Salty Language Pod, Jay the Angry Ginger, boy, I haven't seen you around for a while, Werewolf Radar, The Just Conversation Pod, Anita Flores, Chris Kelly, The Legal Geeks, The Max Word, Angry Hero Sean, hello Sean. Let's Chat Podcast, Christopher Ball, Steven Squalante, my buddy Steve Squalante, hey squirrel, Phil Larness, Martin Olson, the D-Head Factor, hello Jabs, Sensibly Cynical, and Kara Tramontano. If you'd like me to include your name and try to pronounce it correctly, or your soundcast or whatever else you have that has a social media feed attached to it, just add our social handle, at Succotash Show, S-U-C-C-O-T-A-S-H-S-H-O-W, in your stream. And if I see it, I'll say it. That's, I'll say your, your name on an upcoming TweetSack segment of this very show.
I'm going to flick the lights off here in Mobile Studio MX30 and shut her down, but I wanted to thank our guest again, Pat Hazel, for spending time chatting. Remember that Tyson Saner will be by next week in this very same feed for Succotash Epi 304, so be sure to subscribe wherever you like to get your podcasts from, and I'll see you the week after that. Until next time, if you're lying on a sunny tropical beach and an attractive young person pauses at your beach towel and asks if you've heard anything good lately, won't you please pass the succotash? Hmm? You've been listening to Succotash, the comedy soundcast soundcast with your host, Mark Hershaw. Brought to you by Henderson's Pants and... Imagine your company's name right here. Rate us and review us at Apple and Google Podcasts. Find us on the web at SuccotashShow.com. On Stitcher. On iHeartRadio. On YouTube. On SoundCloud. And wherever fine soundcasts are streamed and or downloaded. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Succotash Show. Like us on Facebook. Email us at marc at SuccotashShow.com. Or call into the Succotash Skype line at our toll call number 818-921-7212. You can also upload clips from your favorite comedy soundcasts directly to us using our direct upload link at Hightail.com slash you slash Succotash. Succotash is produced and engineered by Joe Paulino through the auspices of Studio P. Sausalito, the home of the hit. Our hosts are Mark Hershaw and Tyson Saner. Our musical director is Scott Carvey. Our booth assistant is Kenny Durges. Succotash is executive produced by Mark Hershon. Until next time, I'm your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to please pass the Succotash goodbye. This has been a Succotash Patch production.